I'm Mariah Kofsky, and this is Called, a show where we hear from those who have discovered and followed their calling. Hello, and welcome back to Called. It's your host, Mariah, and today's guest is someone very dear to me. It's Reverend Brianna Lynn, aka the Reverend Witch. And Brianna is a minister, instructor, soul mentor, medium, speaker, and ceremonialist. I met Brianna when I was 18 years old, just out of high school, in 2014, on this wild, rugged, three-month backpacking excursion through the Andes and Amazon in Bolivia and Peru, where she was my instructor, which meant that she was my teacher and mentor and medic and mother and all these roles. I signed up for this experience because I was interested in exploring mysticism and indigenous cultures. I wanted to improve my Spanish. I was pumped by the idea of traveling with everything I needed on my back. In many ways, I didn't know what I was signing myself up for, but that was what was exciting to me because if I didn't know what was there, I couldn't fear what was there. Or so I told myself. And I also think my idea of what the unknown could be was very limited because, yeah, we don't know what we don't know. I was aware that I was afraid to fully embrace what this experience could be. And the first night I was with my group, this was in Miami before we flew into La Paz, there was a program coordinator sharing what we should and shouldn't bring, saying that we can still send some stuff home if we overpacked. And the example he used of what one should not bring was this girl from a previous trip who packed 14 pairs of underwear and everyone was laughing and I was like, oh my god, like I brought 14 pairs of underwear. Maybe, maybe I'm less prepared than I think. Maybe I'm not on the same level as everyone here. Um, maybe I missed that memo. There was a packing list sent out that did not say to bring 14 pairs of underwear, so that was my own doing. I had this fear instilled into me that if I didn't have enough underwear, I would die and it would be the end of the world. Really rational, yeah. But I mean, like, I didn't, I didn't send the rest home because on one hand, it felt ridiculous to, like, send a package of underwear home and just that, like, I wasn't gonna go to the post office to send underwear home. I mean, I guess I could have. And also, I was still afraid. So I say this because I think that story represents the fear I had about being in nature. I was so afraid something would happen to me, like I would, some victim complex stuff going on, fear about independence of my own capabilities, etc. So have I completely transcended these patterns? No, probably not. But prior to this trip, there was no understanding that they existed. So when I arrived in Bolivia, I was like very small, under 100 pounds. I had barely any muscle. I had never hiked a mountain. I had never been at a high altitude. And within the first week, we were at like 14,000 feet hiking eight hours a day. Yeah, (laughs) I also became pretty ill on the trip. I remember the first time that this happened was in La Paz and I started to feel really horrible. Uh, Warning, bodily fluids. You can skip ahead if you don't, if that's not chill with you. Okay, so I'm in the bathroom in La Paz and 
I start having like really bad diarrhea and I was like, oh, this feels like it's going to get worse. Can this get worse? And then I started vomiting. Um, Not to like romanticize or idealize a painful experience, but it was like when you witness your body do something that it's never done before, there's this anticipation and wonder and you're like, it's like maybe when you run a marathon for the first time or you do a backflip and you feel like you've unlocked this new level of being in your body like can we really do this are we really doing this so that's what was happening and it felt kind of spiritual but also horrible so vomiting diarrhea i crawl into the room in the hostel that we're staying at again brianna my instructor climb into the bed brianna's there i was also adjacent to another i had a bed that was adjacent to another person on my trip he's also sick we are throwing up into the same trash can and that night we are uh the plan is to get on a bus from la paz go i think to potosi and brianna was like we have to get on the bus mariah and i was like brianna i'm not getting on the bus like i'm the sickest i've ever been i'm so i'm so ill i can't go to the bus station i can't go on the bus she's like i know i hear you i feel you but like we have to we have to go we have to go on the bus brianna agrees to sit next to me on the bus. Um, I throw up on her in the middle of the ride. And I say this because this was, I think, the moment or one of the first moments where I just saw how magical Brianna is. And I threw up on her and she just responded with so much grace and ease, even though I felt disgusting and ashamed and like dissociated. She was, she was just like, it's okay. Like, it's okay. I'm, I'm here. And Throughout the entire trip, I was, or not, maybe not the entire trip, I'll say the first month and a half, hard, hardcore, uh, Brianna sat by me and stood by me as I kicked and screamed and cried and complained while we were hiking. Um, it was so, as I said, like, I was not prepared whatsoever to undergo these, I mean, I wasn't prepared, but I did it. It was really challenging for me to recognize the beauty of the Andes and Amazon when I felt like they were constantly kicking my ass and whenever I was in pain physically and emotionally and having to surrender with every step of every hike, Brianna was alongside me, guiding me and surrendering and also like showing me my bullshit with so much love. And I think that was probably the first time where I saw that modeled where someone could call out my bullshit and love me and Brianna was so present with me and enthusiastic to teach me about or discuss anything that sparked my curiosity like philosophy spirituality sociology feminism her own life she showed me how to explore darkness in real time with curiosity even when one feels afraid and ostensibly unsafe. So yeah, today's guest is Brianna, the Reverend Witch. Uh, More about Brianna. She earned her NLP Master's Practitioner at the NLP Marin, at NLP Marin, and began her first coaching venture, Whole Life NLP, in 2010. She integrates this with her master's in peace education from the United Nations University for Peace. 
This, along with her 15 years of adventure and study in Latin America, serve as the foundation of her soul's purpose, ending all wars with self, other selves, and the world herself, for all beings to embody heaven on earth in this lifetime. She is also the founder of the Earth Temple, which is both a center for prayer and school of shamanic arts. In this episode, we talk about nature as an equalizing force, what it looks like to build a society based on the laws of nature. We talk about how to get a mentor without the financial means to pay for one, Brianna's experience serving plant medicine for the first time, how Brianna is working with the Decrim California movement and maps to to assist in the study of plant medicine, and much more. Brianna's contributions to this conversation are dense and deep, as per usual, so you might want to listen to this conversation more than once. Just a suggestion. I know that um, I find one of the most challenging aspects of interviewing is letting go of this perceived need to process all that's being said in real time. Like sometimes I'll listen back to an interview and think, why didn't I pick up on that anecdote when I was doing this interview and ask a follow-up question, blah, 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 yakki schmackety. Ah. But I think conversations are similar to music in that you can't pick up everything the first time that you are listening. Like active listening requires some type of ego suspension and it's kind of like meditation. Um, Where am I going with this? Right, okay. So if you like this podcast and it makes you happy or feel less alone or you learn something, subscribe, rate the show, leave a rating. It would be awesome if you could let me know because sometimes it feels like I'm just speaking into the void, which is all good too. Also, this is a Zoom interview. My initial intention when I created the show was to meet with everyone in person and I still resonate with that. I love meeting people in person. I think it yields a, a stronger interpersonal connection than if I am speaking with someone over the phone, but you know, it is what it is. It is a sign of the times. This is a Zoom interview. My last note is that I'm uncertain whether this podcast will be bi-weekly or weekly, given we're in a pandemic. You'll have to stay tuned to find out. Okay, without further ado, Reverend Brianna Lynn. I am here with Brianna. We are on a Zoom call. Brianna, how are you doing today? I'm I'm doing really well. Like I said earlier, you know, there's a lot going on and I'm very humbled by all of that and I'm grateful to be here. Mm, I'm so grateful to talk to you. Um, we know each other from a pretty wild experience backpacking through long stretches of the Andes and Amazon together like six years ago now. Mm-hmm. And I'm so grateful to reconnect with you on this show yeah yeah we've come a long way we have yeah (laughs) um the first question i would love to ask you is what are you called to do well you know that's a big question and i guess i'll just take it into the micro like what i'm what i'm being called to do in my daily life right now is listen really listen and not just listen to my with my ears but to listen with my whole body, I, I work with a practice and teach a practice called listening to the trees. And it's just about tuning into the electromagnetic frequency of life. 
it's it's the least woo 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 thing out there. It's <laughs> yes, we are talking to the trees, but really what we're doing is we're utilizing the electromagnetic frequency that is in every single cell of our body to attune with whatever it is that's in front of us. And I work with the trees and the earth mostly. And so within the tree is electromagnetic frequency life energy that is the same life energy within each one of us and we can connect with anything that has this life energy any atom that is frequent at a frequency essentially and my calling right now is to listen deeper for myself and then i lead my allies formerly known as clients and students um, into this process of deep deep listening and i believe my calling is also being a stand for the great mystery um, the great mother, the Gaia mother, that we don't know the answers, that whatever a religion or a tradition or a guru or a governmental figure starts claiming they have the answers for everybody, um, that's not ex only extremely dangerous, it's just not true. Um, it's just not what is. What is is that we can know very, very little and our process of life as it unfolds is to lean into the next level of the great mystery that is for ours to understand. And that is an infinite process of continually leaning in, continually leaning in, continually leaning in. Great. Now, what do I not know? Great. Now, what do I not know? Oh, I've learned this. I've experienced this. I've had this revelation. Fantastic. Into the next one. There's, it's a dis destinationless journey of life and all earth people speak about this. All tribes across all nations have always spoken about the great mystery as the one and only true religion, as the one and only true way to get in touch with spirituality. The moment we claim to know what the infinite is, we have lost the infinite. Mm. So my calling is to not know <laughs> and to listen, to listen to the next layer of not knowing for myself, for others, and, and for the planet. Oh, Brianna. <laughs> I, love, I love that you're called to listen because I think it's only when we're listening that we can also receive. And it's also essential for us to know what is happening. Like when we're dissociated from our bodies it's almost a way of like coping with the unbearable aspects of our personal lives. And who does that really serve? As I said before, like we met in these wild circumstances where you were my instructor, you were my like my guide, a medic, a mother, you were so many, you had, you took on so many archetypes and roles while we were backpacking through the Andes and Amazon for three, four months. And I'm curious to know, how has nature helped you find your sense of purpose? That's a great question. Um, yeah, my sense of purpose, my passionate purpose uh, is to end all war with self, within myself, and all wars within other selves, and end all war on the planet herself, bringing heaven to earth in this lifetime where all women, children, and others can walk on the streets safely without having to look over their shoulders and all beings have enough food and self-expression, right? So that's my passion and purpose. That's why I'm here. That's my vision. You too, all of us, we're here for this. Um, and nature has, has guided me towards this. Is It's because it's what nature is. Nature is life. Nature is the infinite fractal. Nature is when we close our eyes and see the angel wings of the light beings coming through 
um, it is all of these essences of life. And so whenever I am in nature, I am reminded that I am nature biochemically, right? Not just woo woo. Like this is not even, this is all measurable. This is a great thing. Science is finally caught up to the witches. Science has finally caught up to the earth peoples who've been saying we are one organism. It is now able to be measured that the electromagnetic frequency that's inside of me is the same exact electromagnetic frequency with the same neurosynapses that's in all the mycelium that connects all the plants on our planet. And so when I'm in that frequency of life, I'm reminded that I am life. I'm also reminded that there's death. I'm also reminded that there's decay. I'm also reminded that there's transformation. I'm also reminded that nature isn't fair. Nature is not punitive. Nature is not rewarding, right? If you get the mantra right, it doesn't mean you get more in your life. Or if you figure out manifestation, it doesn't mean you're going to get extra points. It just means that you're playing that version of the game. Nature is the ultimate equalizing force. Nature doesn't give a fuck how many followers you have but she does care if you know how to keep yourself warm. The thing that will pe drive people the craziest in nature, like when they're abandoned out in nature or someone who's lost in the woods, isn't that they don't have the skills, it's that their mind doesn't know how to handle the unknown. Nature confronts us with the what is. We don't know anything and we control nothing. At any moment, a tornado could come, you could be gone. An earthquake, you're gone. A tsunami, done. Lightning bolt, done. Like nature is the equalizing force and there's no amount of followers, no amount of money, no amount of power, no amount of sex, no amount of influence that you can use to negotiate with nature. And I love that. I want to be more like that. I want to be an equalizing force in my life where it's non-negotiable. What I am a stand for is life and those who are creating. And I am not a stand for those who are evil, E-V-I-L-L-I-V-E, who are literally living backwards who are destroying in their path. We all have destruction at certain points in our life. I've destroyed parts of me too. It's part of it. We get to let things die. We get to be teenagers. We get to be mid twenties. We get to be mid thirty. We get to do all the things and understand the process of creation and destruction. It's not about being a creator all the time. It's about the main thematic of my life is to live life well and to do so in a way that encourages, invites, creates spaces for others to also live life well and names places in our current socioeconomic, uh, governmental, educational, medical paradigms that shun out groups of people from also living well. Classism, racism, sexism, genderism, all the isms, right? That exists within the knowing that we are also all one equal force. So nature is the ultimate equalizing force. And in stepping back into society and nature, we see that we've created a society that does not reflect natural laws. It does not. And that's why it's failing. That's why it's not sustainable. The only thing that's sustainable is something that's designed after natural law. And natural law being that everything has the right to life, that everything has an opportunity to express itself in its fullest, that everything will live and everything will die and every place is available at the table. Every single human has a place at the table that is available on our planet right now. We have enough food to feed everyone on the planet. We have enough food to feed 7.78 billion people on our planet right now. We have enough water. We have enough resources. The problem right now is that we're not allocating it properly. When you look at the forest and the mycelium that's under the earth and the way the water is distributed and the way that things are distributed, it's not egalitarian, but it's properly appropriated. It's appropriate in its places so that every piece of the forest gets to participate because nature understands that it's an ecosystem. No one individual tree can live without 
the earth, can live without the waters, can live without the mycelium. Everything is interconnected and not in a kumbaya way, but in a like, if we don't get together, we're not going to fucking survive kind of way. So nature teaches me the what is. It's not mm -hmm. idealism. It's not hippie. It's not woo woo. It's just what is. Rihanna, every time you talk, I feel speechless. There's so much to ingest. Uh, backpacking through South America was in many ways a rite of passage for me because it was an opportunity to forge a new way of being and reconnect to something greater than myself and thus take purposeful action because it taught me that if I did not surrender to the laws of nature, then I would be fucked. And mm -hmm. what did being a backpacking instructor teach you about you and your purpose? Um, a couple of things. One, I love people wherever they're at, right? Like we, we got to experience some beautiful, amazing, deep, powerful dropped in moments. And we got to experience some bullshit. <laughs> within our group, <laughs> within the environment that we were in, within the corporation that had hired me to do the work that I was going to do. I got to experience multiple dimensions of bullshit, right? My students directly lying to my face, like all the things. I got to experience all the things. And the thing that it taught me the most is, can I love people and not judge them because of their behaviors? Hmm. Can I love the human that's in front of me and acknowledge that they're at where they're at they have the perspective that they have given the best case scenario for their brain. They're going to give me the best of what they have. And the best case scenario for anyone's brain is, is usually never, never at the forefront, right? Like we're under some stress. We're all under some sort of either internal or external authority telling us what it is that we can or cannot express. So I got to really learn, you know, working at that job that where you and I met, that was my dream job in my mind. I thought, and I got to see a few things. One, if I'm still under the guise of someone else's vision, I don't work well, AKA I'm not a good employee. I'm just not, I'm, I'm not a very good slave and I'm a really shitty employee. Mm -hmm. When someone else who's not in my shoes is trying to tell me how to do my job, it brings up every witch in my family line who's been told to shut up and sit down and she wants to come out and just rage at their throat. So I got to really face off with some of the parts in me that are still angry at, at hierarchy and patriarchy within an organization that was about questioning that very system. Mm -hmm. So I really got to face off with that. And, and you, you, I mean, you got to see it first off. I had to keep my mouth shut if I wanted to keep my job. Oh yeah. Right. And there were so many times where I wanted to come forward and say, Hey, this doesn't feel right. Or this feels unjust. And the way that it was presented to me was like, mm, are you sure it's really worth that fight? Right? Like, are you sure that possibly losing your job is worth you sticking up for your students that way? Or are you sure that you making sure that this opinion comes forward of yours is really worth you not looking good in the eyes of the higher ups? Like I got to experience firsthand within an organization that I love to this day, that is one of the best corporations that I've ever worked for. I got to experience what it feels like to be shut down by an authority figure through a very easy to see patriarchal system. Even the good ones have it. 
That's what I learned. Even the good ones are still stuck in the old capitalist, it isn't even capitalist, monarchy model where there's a king somewhere and everyone else is a serf and a slave. And if you don't listen to what the king says, you're out. Oof. Oh. That wake up was really intense. That was really intense because I'm not a quiet human. Most people will be able to tell 17 minutes into this call. I'm not someone who just rolls over and says, okay, that sounds great. I trust you because you're older and you've done more than me and you know more than me. No, if something's coming through me, I'm going to listen to what other people have to say. Absolutely. And in my listening, I stand for the mutual respect. That's all. I'm not asking that my word be championed over another. Again, I'm not looking for hierarchy. I'm looking for mutual respect. So if I'm telling you what's happening on the ground with my students and what I feel would be the best thing for them, and that's not even regarded in the meaning, ooh, that, that activates so much for me. So I got to see that even within amazing corporations, most are still operating within the old system of hierarchy, meaning that there's a small group of people who are making the majority of the decisions about the daily livelihood of the employees who are in there. Not just, not just work decisions, but our livelihood. We did not have voiceover. We did not have voice if we were employees or independent contractors. We did not have voice if we got to have health insurance while we were traveling abroad. We did not get to have voice on how we flew or how we traveled or what health insurance we got when we were in another country. We didn't have voice in those things. And those things are very important to me as, as not only in their logistics when they pan out in real life, but also in the energetic structure of what we're creating are, are all the entities that we're working with in integrity with what it is that we say that this corporation stands for. No, the answer was no. We were working with organizations that were not in integrity and that really pissed me off. <laughs> so <laughs> I got to learn that no organization nor corporation is perfect. And that in and of itself, unless we're creating it ourselves, um, there is little to nothing that we can do within the current paradigm structures, especially within corporations, to shift it if it means challenging their bottom line. At the end of the day, a corporation is a corporation and they're looking for their bottom line. And until that shifts, until the bottom line becomes about human happiness and human connection, rather than slavery and capital, um, no matter how good the corporation is, if the bottom line is still what's in the driver's seat, decisions will be made at individuals and collectives expense. You put that into words so eloquently. It's always been difficult for me to articulate what that trip meant and the multifaceted emotions and experiences I had because I think when you talk about something you did especially as big as a four-month backpacking trip people expect it to be they're like how was it was it good or bad or like what what happened and there are so many complexities in every experience I felt that this one had <laughs> so many like pressed into it i really resonate with what you said about if you're not living out your own vision if you haven't had the opportunity to feel into your vision and construct your vision and then execute that vision in a way that is interdependent as nature is and as we all are then we are ultimately living within the vision of someone else 
I would like to go back to the beginning of your inner healing work mm-hmm. and how you became or how you recognized and acted upon your desire to heal yourself, if that wording feels right to you, and guide others and witness others in the process of their own self-healing. Um, what obstacles or challenges were you facing that first led you to this work? Yeah. Ah, so good. Such a good question. That's a thick one, Mariah. You've got some <laughs> good questions there. Uh, so the first, the first real awakening that I had around my disconnect, uh, I was around 15 years old and had a big awakening. Um, my dad was a farmer and we had just lost our land. There's a law in California that says if your agricultural land goes fallow, you don't make money from your agricultural land for four years, the government can revoke it at what they deem to be market price. And that's exactly what happened to my family is our land was taken away from us by the California state government backed by the United States federal government, land that had been my family for two and a half generations. And um, when that happened, I was, everything crashed around me because I thought I lived in the land of the free and the home of the brave. Like, wait, mm-hmm. what the fuck? Like, how, how, how did my, you know, libertarian rooted government just take away land that is owned by my family? We didn't owe, we didn't owe debts on it. There was no debt on the land. Okay. It was because of agricultural land. They wanted to build on it. They had been eyeballing it for over a decade. And when El Nino hit a huge series of storms combined with NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, and prices of corn and produce here in California especially plummeted because there was all this influx of cheap produce coming to us from Mexico, all small and medium-sized farmers got fucked. And I watched it. I watched my dad's mental and physical health crumble. I watched our family of six, when we were raising four girls on a farmer's budget, uh, go into poverty. And I was the oldest. I'm still the oldest of my family. And, you know, being the oldest child of my father, I witnessed firsthand what this did to him on the inside. And it broke my heart. And it breaks my heart to this day. And this has happened to farmers all over the United States, all over India, all over South Africa, many places where there were small, medium-sized sustenance farmers for communities. Um, In the 90s, there was a huge wave of creating agro-business in different places in the world and enslaving all farmers to become farm workers. Um, So when I was 15, I had this big awakening around, I can't trust my government. Holy shit. And I was raised born again Christian, you know, trust America, God is great, this is the land of God, all the things. Um, Right around that time, I also started questioning the context of the religion that I was raised in, I was no longer vibrating with the idea that if someone didn't accept these certain amount of beliefs that they would go to hell forever. Like that just didn't feel true in my body. Um, I was with the plants a lot. My dad taught me how to speak with plants from a very young age. And so when I would check in with the plants and they vibrate at this frequency of love and life, and then I'm hearing what's being told to me at church and the frequency was so disconnected from what life actually is, um, there were things in the Bible and things in my in my religion that I was raised in that deeply resonated with my heart and were very true and are still true to this day. But the majority of what I was taught as dogma for my religion, I started to see through the bullshit. 
especially around judging others, especially around condemning others to hell, especially around not being able to commune with other peoples based on their beliefs. I knew I needed to commune with other peoples who had different beliefs than me. That's the only way I could grow. That's the only way I could be in the unknown is if I'm around other people who know things that I don't know or believe things that I don't believe. So this idea of creating a monoculture of belief systems was not of interest to me even at that time. However, it disassociated me from my social community. I felt extremely disconnected from my government. That same year is also when we went back to Iraq. Mm. And I watched, I, came, I come from a very low income area uh, in the Inland Empire in Southern California. And out of almost 600 students who graduated from college, 75 or graduated from high school, 75% of them went into the armed forces. 3% of us went to college. So I was one of, I believe, almost 20 students who went to second education. This is, includes community college. So I was in a loss and I felt so disconnected. This was also at a time where I was deep in an eating disorder from my own pain, from the pain of being in a weird religion, chastity belt, being a dancer, all the things. I was deep in bulimia. And I had this wake up where I started observing myself. I could literally see myself six inches outside of myself in class, in my bedroom. And I could create this observer model so that I wasn't so deep in my emotional experience. Fast forward to college. Um, I went to the University of Redlands where I studied socioeconomics in Latin America. I, I went through the Johnston College where I got to design my own major, no grades, all feedback, amazing system, highly, highly recommend it. University of Redlands, Johnson College. And I studied abroad. And when I studied abroad, I was gone for an entire year. I spent my first year in Southern Mexico, or excuse me, my first six months in Bolivia. And then my second six months in Southern Mexico and Guatemala. Uh, it was to learn the language and study socioeconomics. Studying socioeconomics in these areas immediately goes to indigenous areas because there is such a, a diverse, uh, not even diverse, a complete split. In these areas of the world, there are the haves and the have nots. There's not much of a middle class. And so my choice was to either study the rich and the wealthy or study the, those, the majority, the majority of whom are also indigenous. So I started studying indigenous peoples and their interaction with culture and this new wave of money, especially with the, the state restructuralization that was happening in the 90s and the early 2000s. And in Bolivia, there was something called the Water Wars, which I did my thesis on. Um, I was there mm -hmm. two years after the Water Wars, got to get deep in the process. While I was also there, I started hearing about Andean Cosmovision. And Indian mm. Cosmovision is a concept that we are all connected as one and that there are three levels of life, the higher worlds, the middle worlds, and the lower worlds. And each one of these worlds represents an aspect of self. And so I started diving deep into this philosophy. I also started studying anthropologically plant medicines and how people throughout the Andean region and the Amazonian basin have been utilizing plant medicines and theogenic psychedelic medicines to help heal what we call mental illness. And so I just clicked it like on my radar, but didn't sit with plant medicines myself. A few years out of college, um, I've been reading the books, studying the things, doing all the things and realized that I was still deep in my own self-loathing. I had a lot of people pleaser mentality, had a lot of uh, feelings of not being good enough and ultimately went down and lived uh, in South and Central America for the next six, seven years on and off. Um, studying traditional plant medicine, specifically ayahuasca, yaje. And in this process of sitting with this medicine, studying this medicine, and along the way, I, I dieted with many other medicines, but ayahuasca, yaje was my was one of my main drum beats. Um, it woke up in me the infinite self, and the infinite self is 
eternal life and we are all eternal and the life that was before us and the life that will be after our consciousness lives eternally our consciousness is a blip in time of electromagnetic frequency and biochemistry and we will not remain as a memory uh, within our same consciousness after our body is complete in this lifetime and so i got to see that when i first started sitting with the plant medicines it was confusing i didn't have a tribe of people i didn't have a group that i could really integrate with um, and over time, that is what my partner, his name is Bearheart, and I have built. We both sit with plant medicines as a deep part of our spiritual journey. We support others who are sitting with plant medicines as part of their journey and integrate it into our daily life. So we learn all of these things. And what do we actually want to create from this? Once we are out of the mind of slavery, of either being self-aggrandizing or self-loathing, needing to blame someone, needing to hide someone, needing to project our pain or needing to rescue anyone. Once we get out of that ego triangle of blaming, shaming ourselves or someone else, projecting our pain or trying to rescue anyone, once we're out of that, that's when we can actually create. So this journey has been getting to that point of being a creatrix of my own life for my children, for my beloved, for my community, from a place of not having the answers, but together we can create better questions. And so um, I can't say that there's like one point, there's been many, many healing points that have brought me to this place. But what I kept doing and what I encourage you to do and anyone who I ever work with is just keep listening. That voice you've always heard since the beginning, knowing that you have a reason why you're here and that it's very unique and that it's very special. Keep listening to that voice. That, that voice is the ultimate voice. That is the electromagnetic frequency of life. Some people call it God. Some people call it goddess, spirit, creator, life force energy. That's all it is. Universal life force, Reiki energy. It's all the same. It's love. It's the frequency of love. It's the frequency of life. It's, it doesn't matter who we are. If we can remember what we are, what we are is life. What we are is love. What we are is radiance. And we're here in this spiritual curriculum called planet earth to understand how to express that love, how to share that love and how to receive that love in a context that has convinced itself that it needs more than human connection and our purpose that we get to live together. That's really all we need is intimate relationships and our passionate purpose and a good enough structure so that we can hide from the elements and enough food and water so that we can sustain ourselves. But outside of that, nothing else is needed intimate relation with self and other selves and our passionate purpose a reason to get up in the morning and create hmm. your story just has so much like life force behind it and i am even though i have talked to you before about your purposes and what you're called to do i still feel in awe every time that you share hmm. um Hmm. I, I love your advice about listening and how listening is maybe the single most important thing we can do for ourselves because if we're not listening to that voice, we're less likely to uh, register and complain about the unlivable conditions that we're in, which makes us more obedient to a system that does not love us and that does not necessarily want us to be interdependent with one another and be fulfilling our purpose. Um, and I, I think it's only in the body where we can translate and channel those messages when, when we're tuning in. You work with clients one-on-one -on -one and in groups. 
what was the first time that you worked with a client? What was that experience like for you? She won't, I, she won't mind me saying it because we've said it publicly before, but my first, one of my first clients ever, her name's Kelita. She's the showgirl shaman. She and I came up with that concept together. She's the showgirl shaman. All y'all can check her out, hot pink feathers. She does online showgirl work to help you awaken your inner showgirl shaman. She's fucking fabulous. Um, I met her in 2010. I was 24 years old when I first started coaching one-on-one. Um, I'm not an ageist, but where I was at, at 24, I was definitely under nobody's business should have been coaching quite yet. <laughs> I was still <laughs> deep in my shit. However, I, I know now that you don't have to wait to reach a perfection point to support anyone else. And I got to support so many people at a time where I was still needing a lot of support. And I'm still at a place where I'm also coached. So there's never any, mm, when we get there, we get to share it. It's share what you got now. Yes, yes, yes. So... <laughs> When I first started working one-on-one with clients, I had no idea what I was doing. And I was pretty upfront about that. I was like, I don't know what to charge. I don't know how to do this thing. Um, But one of the pieces that was really big for me, and I think this is huge for anyone who's interested in diving deep into a body of work that you would like to share as your own body work, is I got a mentor, Matthew Blum. Thank you, thank you, thank you. He took me under his wing. He had been coaching for a few years. He had done the same school. He actually recommended me to go to the coaching in the NLP school that I went to. I trained and studied family constellations with him. Uh, I worked with him for three years and, and he's still one of my best friends to this day. And so if you want to create something in your life and you see someone do it, pay them to be your mentor. Why do we pay them? Because we don't have chickens to give them anymore. And when you used to go to an apprentice or a mentor, when we were in the apprentice ages, you would bring them something for their time. Do not ask anyone for their gifts for free. That's fucked up. Even if it's not money. If you would like to receive something from anyone, start with the giving. So my first introduction to working one-on-one with clients was because I had a mentor who was doing it and I got to see it modeled really well. He was all about alignment, not enrollment. I'm not going to try to enroll people in my program. I'm not going to try to get people Mm. to get this. Let me find the words to get my audience. No, he was like, I'm going to radiate what is true for me and those who are attracted to that will contact me and then we will get on a phone call and see if they're in alignment with what I want to be creating more of in my life and in this planet. And it was a very different come from than most of what I'm even feeling now in the coaching and new cage spirituality world. It feels like wheeling, dealing, snake oil, shaman, everybody come for this five day program and everybody do this 30 day thing and everybody go to Costa Rica and drink ayahuasca. Shut up. Shh. No more Facebook ads. What in alignment, what is actually true for you? If you're thinking about investing with someone, think about alignment. If you're thinking about working with someone, think about alignment, right? It's not about, uh, is this going to give me what I want? It's, is what I'm calling in to create in my life in alignment with what this person is radiating at, what they're saying, how they're behaving, how they're responding. And sometimes it's yes. And sometimes it's no, it doesn't mean the person is good or bad. It just means is there alignment there? And that's still how I work with my one-on-one clients to this day. I'm in a very different format. I only work with four very dedicated, uh, specific people at a time. And I do smaller groups um, for those who are more interested in one-on-one work who don't necessarily want to invest in a full year. Um, 
because I only work with people for a year at a time who want to dive deep. And, and that's just what I've built up to. So people can design how they offer what it is that they want to offer in any way that they would like. And at the very beginning, it's good to start humbly, not self-loathing, but humbly and um, to know that it's going to build. And what we build right now is probably not what we're going to have even a year from now. Um, but to allow it to be in the unknown and to have a mentor, to have at least one person, if not a few people in your field who can reflect back to you what is true. Mm. This question is also something that I'm curious about in my own personal life, so I'm going to ask it. Um, I agree that mentorship is really important and for people who may not have the financial means to pay for a mentor and in fact that is why they're seeking a mentor is to be able to cultivate their gifts and then the financial means that come from sharing one's gift what exchange do you think there is besides money that one can offer to a mentor if they don't have the finances to pay for one it's a great question. I would ask the mentor or like get on their Facebook page and see what they're asking for. Right. Especially if it's, you know, if someone helping with social media or if it's house cleaning or if it's babysitting or if it's, you know, writing emails or if it's like, what is that individual wanting or needing for either them or for what they're cultivating, whether it's a business or a movement or an organization, is there something within that organization that I can plug into and bring value, right? Because money is just a representation of value. So money in and of itself is irrelevant. If someone comes to me and says, hey, I've done some research, your Instagram's looking not so fly. What I would love to do is get it up to this level. Here's my plan. That value is, you know, a thousand bucks. And what I would love to do is trade you my value of a thousand bucks for Instagram hours for, for a coaching session with you. Mm. That will get my attention. The way that people normally come at it is like, well, I kind of want to work with you and I kind of sort of want to do these things, but that's not anyone's fault. It's myself. None of us have been trained in our value. Like we're really valuable. What we have to offer is super valuable. Hey, Brianna, I would love to go through all of your emails and connect with all of your old clients and create a video reel of testimonials. Ooh, Are you freaking good. kidding me? Do you know who has no time for that? This one. You know who needs that? This one. Like that would be so valuable, right? Mm -hmm. So I think if, if you find a mentor that you're really resonant with, ask them or go through their stuff and say, hey, you know, your stuff is really rad and I see a hole in A, B, and C. Here's what I could do about it. I value that at $2,000. Would you be willing to trade that for me? Like it. stand in your value so that it doesn't become, what I see a lot with mentors, mentees, or work trade, it's like, dear great one, may I come grovel at your feet and do whatever type of work trade you desire, please help me. And then the person who receives that will do one of two things. It'll be either A, fantastic, I have a slave that I can boss around. That's not me. I'm in the part B category where I'm like, oh my God, you mean I have to think and do more work in order to bring on this person? I usually end up not getting back to them. Because I'm like, well, unless you have like a concrete idea of what it is that you wanna offer, I don't have the bandwidth. Remember, the people on this side who are mentors, their biggest value is time. Their biggest value is not money. The people who actually have walked into abundance, their biggest value is time. 
So if you can offer something that gives them more time, gives them more spaciousness, and you can show very clearly how you can do that, oh, come on, baby, let's do this thing. <laughs> let's build it, you know? So that would be my invitation for anyone who's interested in moving forward in the conversation of value, value yourself, value what you're good at, identify what it is that would be a hole in the person that you want to work with area and then offer to them in a very clear, logical way. I love that advice so much. And I think what you said illustrates how self-trust and valuing oneself is necessary, not only for a mentee, but also for a mentor. One has to trust that their work is worthy of being shared and consumed and that the right people will find the work. So I know, as you said, you recently opened the Earth Temple which I'm not sure if that's like a physical location right now or if it's an online space that will eventually be brought to the physical world. And I am so curious to know why did you open the Earth Temple and what is the Earth Temple? Um, so the earth temple is, it's two parts. There's the center of prayer and there's the school of shamanic arts. The center of prayer is a, well, was a physical gathering place. We're creating an online gathering place now through a network called the mighty networks, which will get us off Facebook, off WhatsApp, off Google docs, off YouTube, and put it all in one place. We're so very excited about it. It will be launching in mid May, early June. Um, so you'll be getting more information about that. Center of Prayer is completely free. It's where we post videos. It's where we post music around ending all wars with self, other self, and the world of self and bringing heaven to earth now for all beings across all ley lines, across all genders, across all classes, across all races, across all the things, even though races don't exist. Um, but to really create a space where the earth is our temple. Our body is the earth and the earth is our temple. So we honor our bodies, we honor our planet. That's the basis of it. And we created this as a church. We are a non-denominational church recognized by the federal government of the United States. So we are fully protected by our First Amendment rights, which are freedom of religion, which allows for our practices to be much more open. Um, within the School of Shamanic Arts, we have deeper studies and deeper dives, and that is a school. So that is people apply and they can be admitted, and then there are contributions to the school that people pay for their tuition to go through these courses. And we wanted to keep those two very clear. So anyone who wants to participate in the church, receive love, receive support, um, receive, you know, support from our ministerial team. We have a three-year ministerial program that we just started. So we'll have ministers through the earth temple to be able to receive that spiritual and, and 3d support. What I miss the most about the church that I grew up in is like the casseroles. And, you know, if someone was sick, everyone would get on a phone call and do prayers for them. Like we want to revive the good parts of church with letting go of the dogma of judging how other people should be living or praying. Let's be kind to each other. Let's honor each other. And let's ask more questions than tell each other who's doing what wrong. Let's get curious before we get accusational. Um, so Center of Prayer and then the School of Shamanic Arts is, you know, those deeper processes. And we have a couple of different programs running through them right now. I have a women's mystery school. We have a year-long sacred circle facilitators training for people who are interested in diving deeper into the shamanic arts and learning how to share them with others. So we have a few different things happening within the School of Shamanic Arts that we're really excited about. But the big why behind all of this is because there wasn't a church that I felt true to. I don't even like the word church. Like the idea of starting a church was so to me 
And for us as individuals and as a collective, it is the thing in the United States of America that protects us the most. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about that, like, how do you reconcile needing the protection of the United States government while also trying to liberate oneself from that system within this church? So I know part of the Earth Temple is ceremony, which involves sometimes sitting with entheogenic plants. And you spoke about how in South America over those six or seven years, you lived there on and off, you sat in ceremony with plant medicine. What was it like for you to serve plant medicine for the first time? Well, luckily, I'm not serving it as spirit serving. I'm just making sure the physical human bodies are safe um, and that their spirits get back into their bodies. So um, it's very humbling. It's very humbling to be responsible for other people. Um, and I've always served with others, with other instructors, with other shamans, with other facilitators, just because the responsibility of that being on one person is not possible and in my opinion very um inappropriate i think it gives one individual way too much power even within a traditional context i don't sit with someone who is the only curandero or the only shaman in the space i've seen that create power that goes to their head and even in indigenous contexts be the men being very abusive to the women um i was sexually abused by one of my teachers mm-hmm. uh an indigenous man And I know many women who've encountered very difficult conversations and difficult scenarios, even within indigenous context, because our indigenous brothers and sisters are very traumatized. And so they express that trauma in many different ways, domestic violence, drug and alcohol abuse, and also sexual assault of those of us who are coming to learn. And this is not everyone everywhere all the time. This is a unique experience. However, it's happening quite frequently. And so I just say that as a warning, if you're thinking about going and sitting in the jungle in Peru or Brazil, um, know who you're going with and know, know deeply who the teachers are. Even then I've had sisters come back um, with too many cases of sexual assault from indigenous shaman to woman from the United States of all different backgrounds, of all different presenting races right so it's not just white women it's not just black women it's not just uh, women uh are are the first targets in scenarios where there's a lot of trauma and someone needs to exert their power over someone else um and so you know in this context i would say the first times that i started to sit with plant medicine and was called into a more leadership role i was very tenuous slow like i'm not rushing into this this is this is a lifelong path and to be responsible for someone else's physical, mental, emotional, spiritual well-being in those moments um, takes a lot. And also in these plant medicine ceremonies, we're often sitting with the plant medicines ourselves as well. Mm-hmm. And so it takes a lot of humility, a lot of slowdown and a team. It really takes a team of people who are doing the work outside of ceremony, who live life the ceremony, who aren't trying to swindle one thing or the other. One thing that, you know, the medicines have always taught me is you can sit with the medicines as much as you would like, but if you're not living ceremony in between, it's just like a drug. It can bring someone in a downward spiral. The plant in and of themselves 
are just an amplifier. They're just going to amplify what's already there. They're not going to heal you. They're not going to fix you. They're not going to give you all the answers. They're just going to amplify what's already there. That's what a bad trip is. Someone seeing something that's really scary and not having a facilitator who knows how to walk them through that. Scary within themselves. These things are not hallucinogens. They do not give you images of things that are not there. They sometimes give you metaphors of feelings of things that you've experienced. They're not giving you things that aren't already there. What happens is people go into this thinking that it's going to give them something else and then aren't able to integrate it afterwards. And the integration is the big piece. So part of the reason why we've created the School of Shamanic Arts is to help people integrate from these experiences. It's great to have a cathartic experience. It's great to go into your deep shadow. It's great to sit with plant medicine, but it means nothing if we can't digest it and really ask, okay, how does this shift the way that I respect my food? How does this shift the way that I interact with people of other races who are systematically oppressed at this time? How does this shift the way that I interact with people who are not heteronormative? How does this shift the fact, the, the way that I interact with those who are in jobs that feel like they're in slavery? If we're not asking the questions about the 3D, it doesn't matter if we go into the fifth dimension. If we're not able to integrate it back into our daily lives, it actually doesn't matter what else we do. How do we treat each other? Are we treating each other with more kindness? with more curiosity and more space so that we can all heal the wounds of oppression. We all have been oppressed and we've all been the oppressor. And that's the actual wound of oppression that nobody wants to look at. Everyone wants to blame everyone else. The women are blaming the men, the native peoples are blaming the white peoples, the white peoples are blaming the Catholics, the Catholics are blaming the Sumerians, the Sumerians are blaming the Indians, the Indians are blaming the Khans, the Khans are blaming the Chinese. Like we can just go back into human history as far as we'd like to go. And notice that colonization has been happening for the past 8,000 years. And every single person has been a part of it. Every single person has earth indigenous peoples and every single person has an ancestor who was an oppressor of another. Until we get there and we start saying we would like to create something different other than me trying to prove how fucked up you are or me trying to prove that this group of people is to blame or that this group of people is the continual problem. As long as we continue to blame others, there will be the need for vendetta. Vendetta is what keeps the wars going. The crusades have been going on in the Middle East since 900 common era. Can we fucking end the crusades already? No, they're not going to end because ISIS is now blaming the Christians and the Christians are still blaming the Muslims and the Muslims are still blaming the Jews and the Jews are still blaming the, the vendetta until we're willing to let go of the vendetta and really say, I have been oppressed and I have been the oppressor, but what I am is life. And however I present in this lifetime, I'm going to utilize every piece of my privilege to open up spaces for oppressed voices and to have my voice come forward as a voice that says we are done with the war. That's what plant medicine is for. If it's not directing someone back to that place, it's just another form of escapism and drugs. How do you show up and guide someone and witness them undergoing this shift? Mm. Very tenderly. <laughs> very, very tenderly. Um, because this is, 
it's an awakening that requires first us opening our eyes to all the places where we've oppressed others. Hmm. The true awakening is waking up to how we have oppressed others, no matter what you look like, no matter what your racial background is, no matter what your gender is, no matter if you're Audre Lorde, I love Audre Lorde. She was like, <laughs> I am a black lesbian writer in like the mid 1900s. If the only thing that could make me more marginalized is if I was Jewish, you know what I mean? And even she said, if I use my identity to beat someone else, their children will come back and beat my children. Mm -hmm no matter what I use to justify that. We can't beat each other anymore. So to be with someone who's waking up to this realization of I've beat others, I've, I've blamed others, and in my blame, I've oppressed them. Not systematically, systematically there's different things at play, but one-on-one -on -one in our communities, in our societies, when we oppress each other, that is what we wake up to first. And so it requires a lot of tenderness for someone to really awake into what we have been doing to each other. There's no demons, there's no outside forces, guys. This is humans on humans. And that awakening is nasty. That's what we're seeing on our planet right now. This is why people are freaking out with COVID-19 because they're sitting in a corner with all of their own thoughts and the ways that they beat on themselves, on their partner, on their parents, on their children, on people that they thought was their enemy. As long as we think that there's an enemy, we will have a vendetta. As long as there's an enemy, the war continues. Hmm. So it really comes to this place of how to hold people outside of the vendetta, how to hold space for them when they're ready to move, to move beyond racism, to move beyond classism, to move beyond sexism. Not saying that those things don't exist. They exist, but I'm no longer going to identify with the war. I'm no longer going to choose a side. And it's tough. It's tough to be there because it requires us to let go of the very thing that the Buddhists tell us we got to let go of. The only thing that identity will give us is suffering. Thank you, Buddha. Thank you, Siddhartha Magarna. This, this, this basis that Siddhartha tapped into when he stepped outside of his castle and said, oh my God, anything that comes after I am is a lie. I am, I am. I am life. That's it. Anything that else that comes after I am, we get to question question all identity. It's not about beliefs. Beliefs are formed by identity. It's not about behaviors. Behaviors are formed by beliefs, which are formed by identity. It's about identity. What are we identifying as? Until it's I am life, I am one human family, we will continue to see war on the planet. The reason we have war on the planet is because of identity. And someone needs to prove their identity is better than others. Someone needs to prove that their belief is better than others. Someone needs to prove that their behavior is better than others. As long as we're proving that we're better than others, we are causing war. As long as we need to prove that we are better than others, we are the cause of war. And that's it. That's between my four-year-old and my seven-year-old. And that's between Russia and the mm. United States right now. It's the same thing. And I'm watching my four and seven-year-olds emotional intelligence play out on the world forum right now. Cause we've got a bunch of four and seven-year-olds. Actually my <laughs> four and seven-year-olds have quite a bit more vocabulary around emotional intelligence than our current incumbent has. But what we're seeing on our planet is vendetta 
and people who've been oppressed identifying someone to blame as the reason for their oppression. And then they take that collective blame and place it on a group of people. And that is called war or genocide. Totally so, went off your question there. No, I, <laughs> I, I totally mean, took that and went somewhere else with it. I just want to acknowledge that. That's why these conversations are conversations, right? So I imagine that if someone is showing up to a ceremony and you're holding the space for them, a container that they feel safe and they trust you with their life and their death, ultimately, to begin to see the wars with self and the wars with other. I remember one of the most profound things I learned from you was inner peace for world peace. And I was like, okay, that makes sense. I get it. it like, you know, that it just clicked. It was easy. I'm curious to know about the preparation that you ask of those who show up to ceremony, because I believe that in some indigenous cultures, for example, it's customary to go on a dieta prior to sitting in ceremony. There are also, I believe, some some shamans who ask that women who are menstruating not participate in ceremonies. There are some some cultures that where um, it's a rite of passage for teenagers to participate in plant medicine ceremonies. I guess what I'm asking is, what do you ask of those who show up to the ceremonies that you hold before they arrive? And are there parameters in place for who is welcome to sit in ceremony, whether that be um, children or women who are menstruating? What does that look like? So, you know, ceremony for, for us is something that is done in a context. It's usually within a context of uh, a larger course or deeper work that is happening. So intention setting and integration and tribe building is built in. We do not sit with people just like on a one-off, like here, just come sit, not anymore. Um, we find that, that, that these plant medicines were actually made for tribe and made to be in community. So part of it is you get to be a member of our church and you get to be participating in our church before we even talk about that. If and when plant medicines come around, the people that I work with and, and where we work, the, the specific parameters is around preparation, not just of the body, but the mind, the heart and the soul. So really knowing that these plants are here to reveal what's already there. Right? They're going to reveal what's already there. So if we can be doing that cultivation work before then, almost like clearing the clutter so that then when the big stuff wants to come through, it has space. So yeah, being on diet, sometimes being on 30 days of, you know, it depends on what plant medicine and what tradition. Each tradition has something different. There's a few things biochemically with ayahuasca, like fermentation that cannot be mixed because it can affect the way that the medicine works and other prescription medications that biochemically can interact with it. Um, I like to look at both the science and the tradition. I like to look at what feels true for our tradition that we're developing and also really understand biochemically, is there anything that we could eat in terms of food, ingest in terms of substances that would contraindicate or create a dangerous scenario in the biochemistry of a human? So I speak, we speak, our team speaks with each person individually to really get clear what are their ins and outs biochemically, what's happening in their field. But the big thing is to prepare at least 21 days, sometimes 30 days, sometimes half a year of understanding that everything that comes into our field becomes us, everything, other humans, 
opinions, media, food, water? Do I want this to become a part of me and a part of this journey that I take with this master plant teacher? These master plant teachers are tens of thousands of years old. I'm going to go sit at their feet and ask them for their wisdom. Am I going to do that smoking a cigarette and in my own behavioral patterns? No, I'm going to learn how to release my dependence on tobacco. I'm going to clear up some of my behavior patterns so that when I go to sit for their wisdom, I can actually receive it. Mm. And that's very unique for each person, very different for each person. The menstruation piece without any disrespect, I believe is a bunch of bullshit. Yeah. Um, Most people who are told that they can or cannot sit by someone else, that someone else is a man. And I believe that the women who subscribed to this notion that women aren't allowed to sit while they are menstruating um, are deeply under the patriarchal hypnotism, to be completely honest. And that's my personal opinion. Mm -hmm. That's my experience. Mm -hmm. Um, I have bled and sat with peyote in a peyote ceremony where that is very much not allowed. And I was fine. The shaman was fine. Everyone was fine. The road man was fine. Um, There is an old texture that women are beneath men in the Catholic strata that goes God, man, woman, child, and anything associated with woman that man cannot access is evil, wrong, or dirty. Our blood is so pure and so clean and so healthy as long as the woman herself is healthy and not on deep prescription medications. If she's on deep prescription medications, that's a whole other conversation in and of itself. But our blood is healthy. Our blood is good. Our blood can be put into water that is diluted and given to the plants in our garden. And people always think I'm crazy. Oh my God, you put your blood on your plant. Ah. This blood is what you lived in for nine months, y'all. This blood is what created your body. This blood is what created your life. Honor the fucking portal. And if the portal decides that she wants to sit in ceremony with plant medicine while she's bleeding, then the portal can fucking sit in plant medicine ceremony. If the portal decides that she would like to lay down and just sing her songs in bed, guess what the portal gets to do? She gets to lay the fuck down because everyone, everyone, everyone came through a portal. And until we learn how to honor the portal, there will still be a big disconnect between womb, the womb, womb man's bodies and othered bodies. But for those who have wombs, they get to be respected for having those wombs. That is where you live for the first nine to 10 months of your life. Respect that shit. If it weren't for the womb, none of us would be here. So in my experience, in my tradition that I stand with and stand upon is that the womb man herself gets to decide if she would like to sit or not sit when she's bleeding. Mm. Um, I heard that you are working with a team of medical professionals to assist in the study of plant medicine. Is that correct? Yes. That is so awesome. And can you tell me a bit about how that works? Like, are there professors or doctors coming to sit and sit or observe ceremony? How is the experience of participants being measured for research? What is going on? Mm-hmm. Well, most of this is happening in, in Costa Rica and Mexico where these, these processes are, are fully in the legal realm. Um, some of the areas where we're working with other doctors is through the Decrim California movement, specifically for psilocybin. Um, and we work with an organization called MAPS. Um, mm. But overall, the, the main movement is getting doctors and medical professionals to have their own plant medicine experience and to have the allegorical story. Right now, we're just building this story. 
um, outside shit. of a whole bunch of people who are just trying to get high. Cause that's not the thing. We're high already. We're high on life. <laughs> what we are here to is to help heal, celebrate, envisioneer the new planet, the new earth, the new paradigm, the new structures that are needing to be in place. So right now we're in kind of the allegory gathering section. Um, one of the research studies that I'm currently supporting um, is the use of exomes, which are these incredible cells that can help rebuild the body in different ways and plant medicine and seeing if there's a way uh, specifically for the brain, for these exomes to be targeted towards the brain with the use of psilocybin and ayahuasca simultaneously. Um, there are some light, light research, I would say, light research being done on ayahuasca and the effects on depression and PTSD. And most of these are being done by doctors who are then going down to the Amazon, down to these places and doing research in these areas for longer periods of time. There has not been any medically funded research that would be considered a um, legit, right? All points marked, all science points marked because of the stigma that is still placed on plant medicine specifically in the United States. So it's just a matter of legality at this point. And we're at the place where people are receiving funding. And while my partner and I are not involved in any studies right now here in the United States, we would love to see those funded through the federal government or through a private organization where it could be incredibly transparent. It would need to be incredibly transparent throughout the process and to be legal, for it to be fully legal and for us not to need to feel like we need to hide in the back alleyways. This is our First Amendment rights. This is how we choose to pray. And we do it in a good way and we do it through with, with good medicine and with good people and um, with clarity and with prayer and with sacredness and with honor and with respect, not trying to take anyone down or get high i think the 70s the 60s and the 70s really traumatized the united states mm -hmm. when it when it comes to um the use of plants because so many people were mixing many things mixing synthetics with the plant medicines with alcohol with open sex and it was dangerous i'm not an advocate for that i'm not an advocate for using plant medicines at festivals. I'm not an advocate for using plant medicines at Burning Man. I'm not an advocate for using plant medicines in any other way outside of ceremony. This is not a free-for-all. This is a way to pray that requires intention. It requires a proper set and setting. It requires knowing where the medicine came from and what's in it. It requires a facilitator who's going to be responsible for the physical body. And it requires integration afterwards for it to be well done and not cause more harm. Yes. Um, I want to know what is dying for you right now? What part of you is evolving right now? What are you letting go of? Yeah, I, I think what's dying in me right now is the piece that's always kind of dying, but it's like another layer of death because we just get to keep dying to those parts of us that came as our teachers. Um, the people pleaser in me is dying. You know, there's a part of me that really wants to be liked. And the more that I speak up, especially around our earth people ways, that we're all earth peoples um, and that we all deserve a place to explore our own indigeneity, people get really offended, especially those who want to blame. And I get to let die the need to be right about any of this. I'm doing my best as a science experiment, as a life science experiment to share what it is that's true in my heart and to offer something that doesn't exist yet. Um, I get to let die 
yeah, any part of me that feels like she needs to prove, right? That rescuer shadow, that mm. that victor shadow, like I I need to show that I'm that my intentions are good. No, you don't understand. Even though I'm white presenting, I'm an ally, right? Like there's that part of me. And and to be a true ally means to just like smile and nod. Okay. They're in projection shame right now. Got it. They're in super pain and I look like the people that they've been told are the ones who've hurt them. Got it. And they can't hear me as a human. And that's okay. That's hard. That's hard when I just want to be loved and I just want to be seen and I just want to love and, and see others. I don't want to argue about our ancestors. I don't want to argue about whose pain is worse. I do want to hear you, but if it starts projecting onto me, there's that part of me that wants to prove. There's that part of me that mm, wants them mm-hmm. to see. But don't you see? You, if you only knew what I did my degree in, do you know how many languages I speak? Do you know how much time I've spent with the indigenous people? Like that part of me comes out, the white apologist. And I just, oh, okay, just breathe. Here we go. They're showing me the pain that that was projected onto them. Okay, here we go again. And then also having boundaries with it. The other part of me that's that's definitely dying is the part of me that feels like I just get to be walked over because I'm white presenting in this lifetime. You know, I, I'm part of the colonizers, right? That identity gets to be completely annihilated because white colonization is a conversation of 600 years. Before that, it was everybody, <laughs> everybody. Who sold the slaves? African kings sold the slaves to white people. Who mm. sold white slaves? White people sold white slaves. Who sold Indian slaves? Indians sold Indian slaves. Everybody was selling their people as slaves. This does not justify slavery. This doesn't mean that African American slavery in the United States was okay. No, we get to address the fact that we have racial discrimination in a large system based on what our history has been, but that there is no one to blame. That is my work to do in this lifetime is to let go of the blame and let go of trying to figure out where this whole thing started. I've been manically searching history, her story and our story, trying to figure out who started this shit. (laughs) Who's the first stone? (laughs) Who was it? Who do who gets who gets to pay the reparations for everyone's war? And you know what? It was us. Every single one of us. And it was none of us. It wasn't our fault that this is what we were handed, but it is our responsibility to shift it so it's not the same thing that we hand off to our children. So that's what I'm letting die. The people pleaser, the the needer to prove, the rescuer. And, and any part of me that feels like I need to justify who I am or why I'm doing what I'm doing. Thank you for addressing all the messiness in that. I think that, and I'm guilty of this too, where we speak about things in a dualistic nature because we don't trust ourselves to navigate the in-between. And it's very much not black and white. Mm. Okay. Thank you so much, Brianna. It is always so, such a pleasure to speak with you and be in awe and just listen. Where can listeners find you? Where can they find the Earth Temple, your website, your Instagram, anything else? Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. Everything you can find on the earthtemple.com. Super simple. You can contact me there. Um, all of my Instagram, Facebook, all the things are at Rev Brianna Lynn, R-E-V-B-R-I-A-N-A-L-Y-N-N. Um, you can find us on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, all the things, but the earthtemple.com is our center hub. 
That's where you can sign up for our newsletter. And that's where we'll let people know about the network so that if you want to just be involved in the center of prayer and be in an uplifting space where you can freely and openly practice the religion of one, your connection to source, as long as you're doing no harm to self or others, anything and everything is welcome. So we're standing for the new religion, which is the oldest religion. And we're really grateful to, to be sharing. Thank you so much for, for asking that. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. All right, Brianna. Thank you for coming on this podcast. And mm. I'm sending you so much love. Thank you for listening to this episode of Called. You can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at called underscore podcast, though more active on Instagram. If you're loving this show, if you want to talk about purpose, if you just want to say hi, if you're listening to this and thinking, I want to be on this show, or if there's someone you want to hear on the show, send an email to thecalledpodcast at gmail.com. I think that's all for now, so you'll hear from me next time. Back to my lonely room, whipping out the mummy, trying to cop a groove. Back to school with a pair of new shoes, battle walk the swag walk I do with the rhythm of a blind dude. Make me dance and sing like iTunes, don't know who I am, let me remind you. I am the king champion.